clapping. <laughs> we have experienced some of the most anemic clap-alongs in this church I believe I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I grew up there. I don't know how to clap. <laughs> okay. Well, it's... Uh, that last song is so much fun because it's, you know, you're making a statement. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. How do you know that you'll be there? Because some people believe you got to work your way into heaven. You ain't never going to know if you did enough. Did enough, did the right kind, or what? You, you, can't, you can't honestly sing that song if you believe you got to work your way into heaven. There's some of those that say that, well, only if you're handpicked by God, then only then, you know, you, you can get into heaven. But when the chosen one shall gather over there, you're chosen because God knew you are going to believe in Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's how you know, because not because of what I'd done, but because of what he did and the promises that he made. See, it's, it's, it's before we start Revelation... You first of all have to be a believer in Jesus Christ to be able to understand remotely the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation 1.3 says, which he gave to his bondservants. So the difference between a, a bondservant and a servant like, like uh, Kelvin was talking about and being a servant to our sin nature, a bondservant is one who chooses to serve the master because of his greatness. So if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you have to come to the throne of grace, accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, that he died for your sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day, and that is the way you get into heaven. That is, no, there's no other way. You can't work to get in, you can't work to stay. Because we've been saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, and it is not of works, lest any of us should boast. So it starts with being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the next thing we have to ask is, are, are we in fellowship? Are we walking with him? Are we walking in the light? Is it something <clears throat> that we want to do? We just want to know this for intellectual uh, stimulation? <clears throat> or do we want to know this because we want to have a closer walk with the Lord and a closer relationship with him? And we want to be able to talk to other people about it. Whenever they say, well, the Bible's too scary, I read the, the last chapter. Well, it's scary, but you can miss it all. Okay, and here's how you do that. So we're going to take a few moments for silent prayer. Uh, first of all, if you come not accepted Christ as your Savior, there's, there's, it's nothing you can do to do it other than let the Father know you trust Him. You know, there's no formula, there's no magic words, there's no walking down the aisle, raising your hand. None of those things that add works to it because we're saved by grace through faith. Okay, not of works. That's a direct statement of Scripture. So you let the Father know you trust His Son. You're part of the family forevermore because it depends on Him and not you. And so that, that's a great blessing. Second thing is, it says if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Him. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. With the penalty for sin has been paid for, by Jesus Christ, and when we believe, that penalty is paid for in our life, but the power of sin is real. We know that because it's hard to go through a day without thinking badly of someone or saying badly of something or, or doing the, the wrong thing. It's hard to go through a day. 
So he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's part of how we say it, fellowship with him. Because when we do things that we know we shouldn't do, well, we need to tell the Father about it. You know what? It's not that we're informing him because he already knew about it. <laughs> so we'll keep a close watch on it because sin is not pleasing in the eyes of God any way you slice it. It's just not. And uh, we want to come in front of the throne of grace, find grace and mercy to help in time of need. We want to study to show ourselves approved unto God as workmen that do not need to be ashamed. We want to see that indeed the word of God is alive and powerful. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing. It will divide asunder the soul and the spirit. That's what the word of God does. So as we approach this portion, it's important to be sure things are right. Put away the cares and the pressures and the politics and the, what you're going to eat for lunch. Put that all aside and decide to focus right now. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we are so amazingly blessed. We come together in a free country. And Father, we know that it's only by your grace that we have remained free for these years. Father, we come together without fear of reprisal by a government. And Father, so many times and so many people take this so much for granted. And Father, we know that's not pleasing in your eyes because you told us not to forsake our own assembly. So Father, I come to you this morning and we all come to you. And ask that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. Because as your son told us. That he will lead us into all the truth. And show us things to come. May we get a better picture. Of your plan of the ages. In Jesus name we ask it. Amen. Well we are at Revelation 8.12. So go ahead and turn there. If you would. <clears throat> in Revelation 8.12. We're pretty well into the book. We're a little over a third of the way through it. And so what have we covered? Because constantly with prophecy, you have to, it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You take the four corners of the puzzle first, which are the dispensations. You find all the straight pieces. That's all the very clear-cut things that kind of give you the boundaries and the borders of the, of the picture. And then you start looking for puzzle pieces that fit together. And you start fitting those things together and seeing where they fit in the picture. Now, <clears throat> prophecy, we looked at the rules of interpretation or principles of interpretation first session. There is a harmony to it. It is a third of the Bible. It is very important. There is a harmony to Scripture. So you have to start comparing Scripture with Scripture. You want to interpret literally because that's the way God that's the way God fulfills prophecies. There was a promised seed of the woman back in Genesis 3.15. There was a Messiah who was born in Bethlehem according to the scriptures as well that's recorded in the Gospels of the New Testament. So you see that there are prophecies and there are fulfillments. And the fulfillments throughout history have always been literal. They've been wrapped in figurative language. But it doesn't mean they're to be allegorically interpreted. Allegory means you're reading something foreign uh, into a document. And I have a prime example of allegory, but I don't think I'm going to do it this morning because it's too political. Anyway, 
Think about this last week in a congressional session. There you have an example of allegory. Okay? <clears throat> now, enough said. I'm going to move on. <laughs> Revelation 1 is the introduction. The Lord shows up. He's walking in the middle of the lampstands. Okay? Revelation 2 and 3 are the letters to the seven churches. These churches were in existence in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, back in 96 A.D. when John wrote it. Now, the whole book, according to chapter 1, verse 3, is prophetic in nature. So that means these are prophetic in nature. They were in existence, but throughout the course of the church age, there's going to be churches that are going to rise to the top, and that's how the church is going to be known by that church. Ephesus, early church, 70 to 100 A.D., Smyrna, ten days you'll be tested, ten persecutions under the Roman emperors from 100 to 313 A.D. Pergamum, it's the rise of Roman Catholicism from 313 to 586 when they elected the first pope. You find them starting to descend in evil, but through all of this you find believers in the church. You find that thread. But the church, as proven by these, can get into significant evil over the course of time. Thyatira is the rise of Roman Catholicism. I'm not saying there are no believers in Roman Catholicism because there are. But in Thyatira, from, from basically 586 to 1517, when Martin Luther put his theses on the Wittenberg door in Germany, from that period of time, the church went descended into a lot of evil. And... Then it was followed by Sardis. That's the Reformation, 1517 to roughly 1700. And it says that you are alive. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're really dead. What they did was bring back the significant and important doctrines from the first century. The five solas, as they call them. The sufficiency of grace. Sufficiency of Christ to save you. Uh, the sufficiency of scriptura. Sufficiency of scripture. The five solas that, that were there. Philadelphia from 1700 about 1900, the Church of the Open Door. Greatest evangelistic movement in the history of the world. Here, Philadelphia took the gospel to the whole world. Laodicea, that's where we are, folks. Now, all these churches are still going on to one degree or another, but how does the world know the church? From the United States. And what are we? Lazy. That's what we are, lukewarm. You, have a, you are not hot, you're not cold. At the end of this is what we know as the rapture. We're caught up out of here, snatched out of here. I, I used, some people used to say, well, God's going to come out and snatch you by the hair. That's kind of what Hare Krishnas believe with all the little top knots, but I'm out of luck if that's the case. And, and I'm not the only one here out of, you know, out of luck. <coughs> But it, it harpazo means to take by force. So when he comes back, believers are gone. We're out of here. That is our context. The reason I'm setting this up is because we're in Revelation 8:12. Now, what has already been talked about in this book? Because the way Revelation is laid out, it's laid out by a Jew. They think in topics. And inside these topics, they have a chronology of the topics. But they oftentimes will will have a topic, and that's the way it was revealed, too. They'll have a topic with a chronology inside of it, but it'll be parallel to other topics. So you have to put them on a timeline 
to figure out what is happening when. Now, <clears throat> right after the rapture, first angel comes through. All the believers are gone. He gives the gospel to the whole world. <clears throat> Two witnesses show up according to Revelation 11. We haven't got there yet. Moses and Elijah. They're brought back, put there in Jerusalem, ministering out in the desert, lock up the sky for three and a half years. 144,000 male virgin Jews are sealed, not Jehovah's Witnesses. They, <clears throat> these are all of every tribe except Dan, and they evidently didn't have enough to meet the quota. But they did not cease to exist, as some claim, because they are in the millennial kingdom. They had their own spot out around the temple, read Ezekiel 43:48. That's why we have to compare all of Scripture with itself and a key point is let scripture interpret itself where it does you certainly pay attention to it <clears throat> these two guys in Revelation 13 it's the beast out of the sea and the false prophet beast out of the land <clears throat> and they are the antagonist to the two witnesses the 144,000 and the gospel of Christ now <clears throat> Revelation 7 is where they are sealed and I think at the end of the first year, the first 360 days, the second angel comes through and it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now that's an interesting thing. That's Revelation 14. And so you've got to start figuring out who's Babylon because it says the angel's going to give this message to the whole world. So guess who's going to be the head of the newscast after this, this second angel comes through? And I, my guess is on the anniversary of this one, just as a reminder. And he says, and so everybody's going, who's Babylon? Who's Babylon? Who's Babylon? Okay, well, it's a little bitty city on the banks of the Euphrates River. That's where they're going to start. Anyway, <clears throat> we find these seven seals that were open in Revelation 6. And at the opening of the seventh seal is the blowing of the seven trumpets. Now, <clears throat> we are at this level because it says in Revelation 8.1 there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, it didn't mean 30 minutes because the word hour is used in Revelation 3.10 to describe this whole seven-year period. So for about half of that seven years, roughly three and a half years, but it actually gets more detailed than that. For that, that period of time, there's no blowing of the trumpets, there's no opening of the seals, there's none of that that is there. And we have seen where we are in the narrative is the first three trumpets that are blown. And that's in Revelation chapter 8. So that's where we are, but keep in mind, going on at this time, <clears throat> two witnesses are around, 144,000 have been sealed. Moses and Elijah out there in the desert. First angel has come through. And by this time, all three of the angels have come through when these trumpets are being blown. And we're going to put this puzzle together more as we go into it. But we're at Revelation 8.12 now. <coughs> Revelation 8. Was this thing <coughs> ready to go? Now... First three trumpets, some bad things start to happen, as we know. From Revelation, uh, the first trumpet, uh, we have the prayers of the saints. 
uh, they prepared themselves. There came hail and fire out of the first trumpet. Second trumpet, a great burning mountain cast into the sea. Mountain is oftentimes the picture of a nation that is taken down. And that's used that way that mountain is used as a nation multiple times in the book of Revelation. It's used in in book of Daniel as a nation. We find the third angel sounded and a star fell from heaven burning like a torch. Now that one is not Lucifer. The star falling from heaven in 810 is not Lucifer. And I know that because I read ahead. We'll see that verse in just a a little bit. But it's the name of the star is called Wormwood. So look what's happening to the earth. About three years into the tribulation, the plagues start hitting. Now the plagues are hitting planet earth in a very similar fashion to the way the ten plagues hit Egypt. A lot of them look just alike. If you're a Jew living in Israel or around that area or around the world and you know anything about your history and you see these things starting to happen, that's a wake-up call. But it's also a wake-up call for everybody else. Because what is what has mankind started to do? Worship the created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This is judgments on the environment. And I find it interesting that somehow here we are in this time frame, we're going to save the environment. You and I are going to save the, the planet. i got news for you. We are not strong enough to do that. That is foolishness taken to another level. To think that the world collectively could save the planet, to do that they've got to get rid of 11 out of 12 people on earth. That's their calculations the environmentalist they got to get rid of us well excuse me I don't think that's a good way to go about it there's going to be a lot of people die in the tribulation that's going to be for sure but what would they why why will they say we're gone and dying and all that because we've destroyed the environment and it's just social justice coming back on of course we're not going to be here but on believers how will they try to write all this stuff off well you're bringing it on on yourself. But look at this, because these are environmental judge, judgments. It says, The fourth angel sounded, <clears throat> and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten. Now, I have to bring out some Greek in here, because I, I like to study it, because that's what the book was originally written in. And this is the aorist passive indicative of pleso. P-L-E-S-S-O. It's the only place this word used in the New Testament. We find a lot of those in the book of Revelation. And the word pleso is a plague. It's a word like the noun plague. It's a plague, but it is a um, uh, meaning like a stripe or a wound, but it's something unique because it's a unique word selected for, for the book. There's, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. So it says they were smitten or they were 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 plagued, literally, so that a third of them might be darkened. Now here it goes to the aorist passive indicative of scotizo. Now aorist tense looks at a point in time. Passive says it was done by an outside force. Okay? They didn't just go out from burning out. They were put out. It's the difference between a candle burning that eventually burns itself out and 
somebody stopping the candle from burning. That's the difference between an active voice and a passive voice. So it says they were, they, they were hit by an outside force. A third of the stars. That's a lot of stars, isn't it? And it says, and the day might not, a third of them might be darkened. It's air's passive subjunctive. And the day might not shine, another aorist tense of phino, manifest itself or appear for a third of it. And the night in the same way. And I'm, I remember going through this 30 years ago, trying to figure out what is this thing trying to say. Because your traditional uh, interpretation of this says that the days of the tribulation are going to be shortened. That's traditional interpretation. But, how are you going to shorten the days of the tribulation when the prophecies are so specific that the trib is broken into 1260-day and 1260-day increments? There's two increments of the seven years of the tribulation, 1260 days each. So you can't really shorten the days or the prophecy's not fulfilled. The word becomes inaccurate. There's a, there's a problem there. You see, see what I'm saying? There's a problem by doing that. <clears throat> so you have to start looking for other interpretations. How could, how could this be? Now, <clears throat> this trumpet, the fourth trumpet, reduces the light output of the celestial bodies, which is a severe warning for Israel. If you read, uh, you're familiar with Jeremiah 31, and as mentioned, there are no direct quotes of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. But there's people giving up counting how many allusions are there to the Old Testament in the hundreds Jeremiah 31 thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night who stirs up the sea so that the waves roar the Lord of armies is his name now if this fixed order departs from before me declares the Lord then the offspring of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Now, if you're a Jew, Jeremiah 31 is a common passage because it is a millennial passage. It's what they're all looking for. Looking for the Messiah to come defeat all of his enemies and establish a millennial kingdom. And he says, look up there. Now, what happens? You're a Jew in the middle of the tribulation and all of a sudden <laughs> things aren't the same. And it's affected the sun, moon, and, and the stars. I believe the earth's rotation increases by a third because that would shorten the day without shortening, shortening the number of days. Uh, and it's seen in the second half of the verse, thus cutting short those days. Now, comparing Scripture with Scripture, Matthew 24, verse 21 and 22, says there will be great tribulation. This is Jesus on the Mount of Olives the week before the cross. He's giving what's known as the Olivet Discourse to four of his disciples, and it is a summary of end times, of what, what is going to happen. And it says, <clears throat> There will be great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And he says, Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Now, 
Again, traditional interpretation is there's not going to be 2,520 days in the trip. They're going to shrink the end of it. That's traditional. But that violates the 1,260-day statements. You've got the uh, verses there. The word cut short. Went back and did some research on the word cut short. That's the word kolobao, K-O-L-O-B-O, long O. Interesting word. You always expect stuff like that in Revelation. This word used four times in the New Testament. Two of the times are in Matthew 24. The other two times are in the parallel passage, Mark 13 and 20. So it is saying that it is a unique cutting short that is right there with the, with the timing of the Great Tribulation. So when this fourth trumpet blows, just before the midpoint of the Great Tribulation, there are things that happen. And people say, well, how can that happen if the earth speeds up its rotation by a third? I think that'll make us weigh more, won't it? How are we going to exist? Instead of a 24-hour day, it's a 16-hour day. I know sometimes we say, well, 24 hours is not long enough. We've wished for 36-hour days and some of us have made trips to other parts of the globe and you experience a 36-hour day and you'll never want to do it again. <laughs> I can tell you. But it cuts short. And how, boy, the boy, doesn't that mess the physics up? It, it, it does kind of affect some things. They're spinning faster. So that means that it's going to be ridiculous because that's what it says. Now, I'm a literalist. Is that figurative? If the Lord has a figurative interpretation for that and a figurative way to do that, I'll be fine with it because I'll be watching from upstairs. But I'm saying that's the way I see the passage right now, that he's going to speed up the rotation of the earth by a third. This was probably caused by wormwood, that star that falls out of heaven. Sounds like it might be similar because they think that the dinosaurs went extinct when a comet hit the planet. Okay, KO'd all those dinosaurs that went out. I believe that was the trigger of the flood. Because it says the foundations of the great deep were burst open by an outside force. Something smashed it and started the flood mechanism. Guess what? Looks like another flood coming. Wormwood comes and poisons a third of the, the drinking water. And if we get hit by another one of those asteroids passing by, and instead of being 200,000 miles away, it hits us again, things could happen. Hits us right where the earth is rotating, just perfectly, kind of like it was aimed. Spins the thing up. Now... <clears throat> The event is a partial darkening of the heavenly bodies. And at the second advent, it'll be even more extensive. People who worship the planet, think about that. You worship the planet, we're going to save the planet, and God's doing something from outside the planet to tell you you're not in charge, you never have been, you never will be. Because their rejection is of the God of the heavens. Revelation 16, that's what they call him. 
They don't call him the Lord God Almighty. They call him the God of the heavens. And he's showing them that he is the God of everything, everywhere, and that's who he is. He is the all-powerful, almighty, not Oz, but Yahweh Elohim. That's who he's showing them he is in the tribulation. He's going to prove volition beyond a shadow of a doubt because in the middle of all this that has been written down 2,000 years beforehand at least, it's coming to pass. One trumpet after another trumpet, the sequence is going to be there and he's just showing them that he sees the end from the beginning. That's what he's doing. And there in Revelation 16 with the final judgments of the bowls, it says, and they blasphemed the God of the heavens. They identified correctly, he's bringing this on there. But they're not finding the solution to it. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is Jesus, Olivet Discourse again, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What did it say? After the tribulation of those days. Day 2,521. Immediately. Put in there. This is what's going to happen. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, it's not written down here, but you add Zechariah 14 to it. Because if you read Zechariah 14, you get a much more extensive picture <clears throat> of what Jesus said here. That's where, that's where he's referencing. Zechariah 14 says he's going to put the whole mess out. It's going to be a day unlike any day that's ever been before in history. Nothing like that. And then the Son of Man shall appear. He's going to turn the lights on. All the lights are going off. All the lights are going off. And then he's going to turn them on. And he is going to set foot on the Mount of Olives. And in Zechariah 14, he says one part of it goes one way. And part of it goes the other way. You read other passages, the Jews run out because that's their Red Sea. Only he's not parting the waters anymore. He's parting the mountain. And that is their deliverance. That is their exodus. Because they are all holed up in Jerusalem under siege from the king of the north. And when the Lord returns, <clears throat> then he is going to uh, literally uh, take them out. And gather together his elect, the believers that are left there on the planet when he comes back at the second advent. Now, <clears throat> I will say that the Almighty has authority over the so-called laws of science. This is something that going around today is still going around. With all this stuff, how can mankind exist at all without a divine hand? In circumstances like just described in the book of Revelation, how can we even exist? Fresh water has been taken out. Islands have been hit. Earthquakes. That I think the biggest one they've recorded is like a 10.0 or something like that. And I don't even know if they'll measure these. Because there's going to be earthquakes that are going to... Uh, there's going to be another one later that's going to sink every island. So if you find yourself in the middle of these problems in the tribulation because you didn't believe to be gone at the rapture, 
don't go to an island to escape. Now, how big is an island? How big is an island? I don't know if Australia is part of that or not. I honestly don't. Wouldn't surprise me if it was, because there's nothing prophetically about Australia in the Scripture. So, what if it just disappeared? Very possible. The Almighty has the authority over the so-called laws of science. So, <clears throat> I see people arguing and say, "Well, we just look at the laws of physics now, and we know that this is the way He did it." No, we're looking at the laws of physics now. Because God has chosen various times to reach into time and space and change those. It is not normal laws of physics for water to stack up and form columns and the ground to dry out that fast so people can walk through a Red Sea on it. Okay? That's not the way normal laws of physics work. Unless you have, you have to have everything absolutely perfect or you have to have a divine hand. And he's the one that brought the strong east wind, opened the thing up. That's who he is. When he reaches, he set things in motion. He spoke and brought the heaven then to existence. It's just kind of like, what is the big bang? Poof. And it's there. Now we measure what happened after the big bang. And we think we're smart enough to know what happened at the big bang. And all we can know is that it happened. It happened in an instant, in a heartbeat, in a moment in time. That's what it did, and then he named the stars. Now, <clears throat> sovereign means he is the authority over the laws of physics. The laws of physics is the way God normally acts unless he chooses to change the law. That's what kings do. They have the authority, and this one's got the power. See, that's, this is who our God is. This is who we are serving. Now, in verse 13, he says, And I looked. This is John talking. We're, we're back, to, back to the text. And I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell. Present tense, participle. Kadoikeo, they're dwelling. It's an ongoing thing. To those who dwell on the earth. Uh, prophecy students know these as earth dwellers. That's what they, they call them. Because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels you're about to sound. Now think about this. What, what's happened? Hail and fire is falling out of heaven. Uh, wormwood has hit the earth. You get <clears throat> the, the, the moon and stars, a third of them. Spent. Okay, you got all that. And then the angel comes back and says, we're not done. You're not done. So you think you got control of this thing? No, it's 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 not going to happen. Whoa, whoa, whoa! When you're a, if you're a Jew and you hear whoa, 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 if we're the you know the the Gentiles, the rest of us people around here, and we hear whoa, 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 we think our football team's just lost a game. <coughs> to the Jews, <coughs> when they heard that. They knew something was getting ready to happen. It was not going to be any fun. There are three more wo there are three woes that are left. Now, <clears throat> the eagle appears to be the fourth living creature from the throne room of God. I heard an eagle flying in mid heaven, saying with a loud voice. Now, the four living creatures are there. It appears to announce significant prophetic events that are getting ready to happen 
And that's why it doesn't say it's the fourth living creature. I just suspect that it is. From the throne room of God. Chapter 4, verse 7. I don't think I gave you a reference on the handout. Now to the Greeks, a bird flying through the air or roosting in association with a political event was an omen of judgment. So that's that moves to the Gentile areas. Carrion birds are associated with massive destruction. And that's what an eagle is, is part of. The vultures, the turkey vultures, all those other uh, creatures that fly around there. Carrion birds are associated with massive destruction. Chapter 19 is the picture of the Lord back at the second advent getting ready to defeat all of his enemies. And what does it say? He gathered all the birds together to do what? Help get rid of the bodies. Because when he comes back and defeats his enemies, there are going to be a lot of bodies. And you say, well, that's not fair. He's omnipotent. He warned them. Then he warned them over and over and over again through, through history. <clears throat> Man has worshipped the created. Now the created's being displayed as worthy of judgment and not worship. That's what it's worthy of. Now in chapter 9, we move into the fourth, first woe, which is the fifth trumpet. And the bottomless pit is open, chapter 9. It says, And the fifth angel sounded. And I, this is John, saw a star which had fallen to the earth. Now this is a star that had fallen to the earth, right? This is Satan he's talking about here. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. This is the picture of the fact that stars can refer to those celestial bodies we see in the night sky. Or stars can refer to angels as they're used in Job 38.7 and other passages. And he said, I saw a star that was fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit. Now the word um, uh, pit here is freer. P-H-R-E-A-R. Uh, only seven times in the New Testament. Three times it's used of a well of water. Okay, so like Jesus at the well. You get a picture of what this particular word means. The other four usages are in this chapter where it's talking about the bottomless pit. The word bottomless is abyssos. We get the word abyss that comes from this. It's used nine times. Luke 8, chapter 31, the demons ask Christ not to throw them yet into the pit. Okay, they, The abyss. They knew what it was. They knew their destiny. They knew where they were headed, and they asked him not to do that. We find that Romans 10, 7 says, Who shall descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead? Romans 10:7. The other seven times from the book of Revelation. That's where the nine, seven of the nine times the word is used is found. Found in 11, 7, 17, 8, chapter 20, verse 1 and verse 3. The key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Now the star is Satan, known as the star of the morning, Isaiah 14, 12, whose access to heaven is shut off about five and a half months before the midpoint of the tribulation. Revelation 12 is a picture of him getting thrown out of heaven for the last time. You say, what's he doing in heaven? He's accusing you and me. 
That's what he's doing. He's got, a, he's got his demons that go back and forth. And um, for you to say the devil made me do it, I don't think he's got time to single you out as something special and go with that old devil made me do it. No, he didn't. It's probably your sin nature on the inside that triggered this thing. But the devil didn't make you do it. He's a finite being. He's not an omnipresent being. He wished he was, but he's a finite being. And he can't be everywhere at once. But he's got demons, a whole army of them, and they go out. But he is thrown out. And what's he doing? He says, the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. I love Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9, because it speaks clearly about the angelic conflict. And you know what's amazing about this angelic conflict that's kind of going on in the background, the war between God and Satan? Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9 is the middle, voice, middle verses of the book of Revelation. The very middle verses. And what you find in the very middle verses of the book of Revelation angelic conflict tucked neatly in there that's just placed there you know what you find in the very middle verses of the book of Job in chapter 25 tucked very neatly in the first book of the Bible written angelic conflict do you think maybe God's trying to tell us something about the angelic conflict well the fall of Satan there's five of them okay so this is what we're looking at Demons who committed certain kinds of actions were sent to the abyss, also known as the pit. That's a synonym for Hades. Second uh, Peter 2.4 talks about this same place as Tartarus, where the dead believers also reside, according to Revelation 11.7. So in the pit is a place called Tartarus. That's where the uh, pre-flood angels that infiltrated the human race that's where they were put locked up in chains found in the book of Jude and this is where dead believers also reside Revelation 11 7 the antichrist will come for the, from the pit or the abyss this very same word one of the usages Revelation 11 7 and 17 8 says he comes up out of the abyss that's an interesting statement. The Antichrist is going to come up out of the abyss. How's that going to happen? And also, in defense of people who went to the allegorical school interpretation, that's kind of hard to deal with, isn't it? That part of why they went is because they couldn't figure out any way that this could have possibly happened. It can happen literally when God brings them up out of the abyss. Whenever God does this, I've heard people say, well, the unbelievers aren't going to be read. Well, I, that one is. They have no problem saying Moses and Elijah are. But they have this other problem about this, this other guy, this third actor. The Antichrist will come from the pit or the abyss. The pit is Satan's ultimate destination. He's not in there now. Okay? Revelation 20, verse 1 and 3 says... That's where he's going to end up. So there are already unbelievers in what is known as the pit or the abyss. Those unbelievers are there. And he's, he, this guy's got the key to where they are. Now Jesus Christ grants permission to Satan to open a pit. 
How do we know that? Because he's the one that had the keys. Chapter 1, verse 18. You see how you constantly have to go back and forth, keep in mind what has been said in the book, and bring in the other passages of Scripture from other parts. And chapter 20, verse 1. Guess where he's going back? The Lord's going to put him in there. Jesus Christ saw this fall in a vision. This is an interesting little passage found there in the book of Luke. Just tucked away into the gospel so neatly. The 70 returned with joy, saying, you remember when he sent out the 70? Yeah, he sent out the 70. These, this is the practice run for the disciples. This is on-the-job training. He sends them out, and he, they said, they come back and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They'd watched him cast out demons. They'd watched him heal the sick. They'd done that. And they'd go out into Never Never Land out there. And they come back. And what are they excited about? We've got the power that you gave to us to throw out demons. That's what they're, that's what they're excited about. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The Lord, God and man together, in his humanity, the prophet, as unto Moses. And he gets, a, he gets a glimpse of this. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Why did I connect this passage and that other one? Because what's going to be let out of the bottomless pit? Scorpions. And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. You say, where'd you get this power? to throw out these demons you get it from me nevertheless do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven wow he kind of brought them back to earth didn't he but the fact of the matter is the Lord puts little glimpses of this conflict tucked away into the Gospels. We get a little bit recorded and we put all that together. We get to study the angelic conflict. Now in verse 2, it says, and he, and this is the fallen star. That's the he of verse 1. Open the bottomless pit. And smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. That, could that have happened in conjunction with maybe wormwood? Could that, how could... This could all, one thing follow another. And the sun and the air were darkened. Now it had already been darkened to some extent from the last trumpet. But now it gets darker. So it's like a halfway through the tribulation, all the things we know, the sun, moon, and stars start going out. Only we're going to be topside watching it. But they start going out, and then they get darker. And then by the time of the second advent, they're gone. It's, it's totally dark. And that's when the Lord comes back. And you know, there's not sun and moon and stars in heaven. Have you ever noticed that in, in, the, in our heavenly uh, eternal abode? Because he's the light. That's what it says. Not making that up. He's the light that lights it all up. And he says, it was darkened by the smoke of the pit. That's interesting because sometimes we can see a volcano that is erupted on the other side. We can see the residue that comes floating across. Okay? This is going to be so bad it's going to probably affect the world. And it says, And out of the smoke 
came forth locust. Locust is the Greek akride, A-K-R-I-D-E, used four times. Now, where have you heard of locust before? John the Baptist, right? That's what, that was his diet. Okay, that's eating locust and wild honey. I personally never tried a locust. Anybody in here had one of those? I guess we ought to probably grab one and bite the head off of it just to find out. That's what... <laughs> Some of you going, ooh. <laughs> These are locusts of the trib. The word locust used 45 times in the Old Testament. So when you start talking about locusts to a Jew, <laughs> they know what this is about, but that's what plagues came from. And it says, and power was given to them. See, they came forth locusts upon the earth, and authority, that, that power is actually exousia, which is the word for authority, was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. Scorpions is scorpios, used five times. The Lord gave the 70 ability to tread on scorpions, right? Has anybody ever stepped on one in here? Okay, I have, huh? Liquid fire. I've, I've been blessed and not ever stepped on one. I've been close to it. But that's what I understand. Now this is, they're locusts though. They're not scorpions. They have the power of scorpions. And it says, and here we find locusts and describe invading armies. Here they're coming from hell. Out of the pit. Uh, sounds like if you're a Jew, Joel 1 4 and Joel 2 25, because this is part of the plagues that is forecast in the book of Joel back several hundred years before the time of Christ. It's now going to be fulfilled. And a locust invasion is one of the ten plagues on Egypt sent to judge their gods. Exodus chapter 10. Invasion of locusts. The locusts are not normal. You know, a locust can't inflict pain. So these are oddball locusts. Their authority is limited, but it's painful. Very painful. In verse You'll see that in verse 5. In verse 4 it says, And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth. What? What do locusts eat? That's primarily what they eat, right? They were told they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Isn't that amazing? Here's God sealed 144,000. Okay? They're going to be protected. But what do they have? Power over these things. Okay? And these locusts can't hurt them. And the locusts are selective. The locusts are only going to get people who don't have that seal of God. This is another one of God's way of saying, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I make the rules. I wrote it down 2,000 years at least before it happened. Okay? And this is what's going to happen. Because these guys are the 144,000 with the seal of God on their foreheads. Believers don't have that seal, so they better watch out. But it's, it's very selective. Because uh, believers hopefully will learn the Bible really fast and learn what to avoid. That's one of the things to avoid. But the 144,000, they don't bother. 
But if you're standing next to one with 144,000, you're one of the unbelievers, guess what? They'll probably get you. Now, that's amazing. It's like selective mosquitoes. You know, where they've got, there's only certain people they can bite. There's some people, I think Jimmy Carroll's one of them, that they don't like him. They leave him alone. But the rest of us are open season when we go, go outside. The locusts won't be able to have their normal diet. Between the first and the fifth trumpet, some grass had sprouted. So that indicates there's a short interval of time. Thus, it's not a plague on the environment. This one's a plague on men. That's what it's. It's selective for men. The only people not per, they were not permitted to touch was the 144,000. But believers with faith can tread on them, according to Luke 10. He gave them power to tread on them. Now, the Antichrist, I believe, will use it as a propaganda ploy. Daniel 7.25 says he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. How long is the Antichrist going to rule? Time, times, and half a time. Spelled out right there. See, he's going to rise to power. Okay? Time is... One unit times two units, half a time, three and a half units, roughly three and a half years. He will rise to a power to power, take his seat in the temple of God, and that's about how long he will be there. It says, but the court will set in judgment, his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Daniel eight twenty five, through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, he'll magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they're at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency. Verse 5, quickly, he, they were not permitted to kill anyone. These locusts with stingers weren't permitted to kill anyone, but to torment. Basanizo is the word used 12 times. It's used to physical torment. For five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Wow. That's the locust. The 144,000, the two witnesses, will be telling the world the truth about, about these scorpions. They'll know the Bible. They'll be quoting the Bible and say, Take a look. It's found in the ninth chapter of the book of Revelation, people wake up they'll be telling people about it similar to the 8th plague on Egypt the antichrist is going to try to change the times and the seasons possible explanations could include I'm not saying that's what they are but it could include transmigration of souls these are really bad guys that came back as not grasshoppers but locusts and of course evolution applied to it so they're locusts with stingers Next generation locust, I guess you could call them. Bad karma. That's why they came back. That's why people are getting stung. The dark side of the force. Proof of evolution. They might say, the Antichrist might say, these are the people who disappeared at the rapture. Or, they're working in cahoots with 144,000. 
But who let him out? Satan let him out. He will claim credit for repelling the invasion. Because it says they're five months. So what's he going to do? As soon as they're gone, back into the bottomless pits. I got rid of them. You can count on that. In the in news flash, he got, he's going to claim credit for getting them uh, gone. Just like he's going to take credit for the death of the two witnesses that will happen shortly thereafter this five-month time, time span. And then a lend credence to his claim of godhood, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and 5, and assist the strong delusion talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11. There will be a strong delusion come upon all mankind. Now, I've, I've run out of time. I, you know me, I can go on another hour, but I can see you're all having to get up. So, <laughs> anyway... Book of Revelation, it's got some hairy stuff in it. But again, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when John wrote in Revelation 4.1, I, John, behold a door standing open in heaven, and I was caught up. Harpazo. The Lord will pull us out, out of here, the believers, and deliver us from the wrath which is to come. Now that's a promise I claim. And no matter how bad it gets in this world and how goofy people get, I firmly believe the Lord is coming back for me. You know what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong and I get to go through the tribulation or part of it? You know what? I wouldn't lose my faith in the Lord. I would just say I made an interpretation. He's left me here to help evangelize. Because it is the greatest opportunity for evangelism in the history of the world. That's what it is. So, even if I'm wrong, it'll be a blessing to be here to serve him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your mercy and love and grace. Thank you for all your blessings. Father, we thank you for the prophetic word that makes... Uh, that. It's like a lamp shining in a dark place. We look into your word, and Father, we're encouraged. Even though we see the, the mess that's going on in the world, we see everything being set up perfectly already for what is you have said is going to happen in the tribulation. So, Father, I pray that you'll be with us. Not be alarmed, not be afraid, but, Father, rather be ready for the trumpet. Let us, we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.